Good morning, everybody. It is a good day, Mother's Day. For many of us, it is such a joyous day, but I want to acknowledge that for some, it's a pretty challenging day because the relationship with your mom wasn't all you had hoped it to be or wanted it to be, and there are some folks who've wanted to be a mom, and that hasn't happened. There's a whole plethora of emotions on a day like today. But I hope that in our teaching time, there'll be something of value for each and every person as we gather together as the body of Christ in this place. You know, parenting is risky business. You never know how it's going to turn out. It's always arduous. It's always challenging. And those of us who have blessed uh, to be parents uh, know that we have made mistakes, fallen flat on our faces. But yet we get up and we continue on. I love the story about this guy who was uh, sitting there with his four-year-old daughter looking at the wedding album of when he and his wife, the little girl's mom, got married. The little girl was just fascinated by all the people in fancy clothes, and she leafed through, and she was asking questions about this and that. And when they got to the very last page, that page of her dad and her mom walking up the aisle, he in his tuxedo, mom in her wedding gown, she said, Daddy, is that when mom came to work for us? Even at that age, that little girl recognized there's a lot to do in life together in a family. Boy, it's tough, isn't it? The challenges abound. That video that we saw about things you'll never hear a mom say. Well, I've come to believe there is a vocabulary, there is a language that we parents develop. Not only do we develop it, we pass it on from generation to generation. And what I'm going to do is share with you a video of some of those sayings, and then we're going to have a little quiz. Now, just sit back, chill, and enjoy. Get up now, get up now, get up out of bed. Wash your face, brush teeth, comb, sleep, be hit. Here's your clothes and your shoes. Hear the words I said. Get up now. Get up and make your bed. Are you hot? Are you cold? Are you wearing that? Where's your books and your lunch and your homework? And your coat and your gloves and your scarf and hat. Don't forget, you gotta feed the cat. Each breakfast is what's tell us it's the most important meal of all. Take vitamins so you will grow up one day too, baby. And tell me to remember the orthodontists will be seeing you at three today. Don't forget your piano lesson is this afternoon, so you must play. Don't shovel too slowly, but hurry. The bus is here. Be careful. Come back here. Didn't you wash behind your ears? Plants might definitely rough. Would you just play fair? Be polite. Make a friend. Don't forget to share. Working out each term. Never take a day. Get along. Don't make me come down there. Clean your roof. Wash your clothes. Put your stuff away. Make your bed. Do it now. Do we have all day? Were you born in a barn? Would you like some hay? Can you even hear a word I say? Do not burp or I'll set you straight. Eat the food I put upon your plate. Get it. 
door, let me work with me Get a group, get in here, I'll count the three Get a job, get a life, get a PhD, get a dose confession time. How many of you heard at least one or two of those things when you were growing up? Would you raise your hand? That's not the confession. All right. How many of you, when you heard those things at some point said, if I ever have kids, I am never going to say that to them? You can raise your hand. All right. Here's the confession. Though you said you would never do it, how many of you have ever heard some of those coming out of your mouth? Yes, it's in the DNA, isn't it? Yeah, it's in that DNA. Parenting, it's risky business. It is tough duty, and nobody, nobody knew that more than a woman named Jochebed. She's an ancient woman. We get her name from Exodus chapter 6, verse 20, where she is named with her husband, Amram. They are Hebrew slaves in the time that is prelude to the Exodus. Now, I'm going to paraphrase our scripture this morning, which is from Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. In this story, this section of the story, Jochebed is pregnant. And this is a very tenuous time. You see, she is from the lineage of Jacob, the lineage of Abraham and Isaac. Centuries before, Joseph came to Egypt. Joseph was one of the sons of Jacob. He had 11 brothers. Now, he was, not a, he was not a wise young man. His father showed him favoritism, and he lorded it over his brothers so much so they got sick of it. And when he was older, they set upon him and sold him into slavery to caravanners that were on their way to Egypt. Once there... He was accused of a heinous crime, falsely imprisoned, spent years languishing there. But because of his, his great faithfulness, he rose to a place of prominence. And with his wisdom and acumen, he saved Egypt from a tremendous economic catastrophe. He so garnered the Pharaoh's favor that the Pharaoh invited Joseph to have his father and even his naughty brothers to come down and settle in Egypt. So all of the Hebrews came down and settled in the northern province of Egypt. For many years, there were good relationships between the Egyptians and the Hebrews. 
But in time, the Pharaoh that thought so much of Joseph died, and ensuing Pharaohs diminished the value and the legacy of Joseph. In the meantime, the Hebrews were prolifically fruitful, babies being born, so much so that the Egyptians began to be worried that they might be an overwhelming force against them should war break out. The Pharaoh, in an effort to stem that tide, sent out an edict. He said, for every Hebrew child that is born, if it is female, she may live. But if it is male, the male child is to be thrown into the Nile. There's Jochebed, perched on the birthing stool, in the throes of labor, attended by the Hebrew midwives, And in the strain of labor, at last the baby is delivered into the hands of the midwife. The baby's warning cry is heard. The midwife calls out, it's a boy. And whatever joy there is, is tinged immediately with panic. Because Jochebed knows the edict. And she cannot bear the thought of this child being thrown into the river. The first thing we learn about Jochebed is that she's going to be proactive in the life of her children. She is not going to sit back and just let life happen. The text says that for three months she hid the baby. Now, what does it mean to hide the baby? Certainly, people in that that village, wherever she was, would have known that she was pregnant. What she is hiding is the sex of the baby. But after three months, she knows somebody's going to find out that is a boy child. So she takes a papyrus basket. She waterproofs it, puts the baby in the basket with the appropriate kind of clothing, takes the baby to the bulrushes of the Nile, where the waters are shallow, where the reeds are tall, six and 12 feet, nestles the basket there in and amongst the stubble and debris where it will be secure and leaves someone in charge to watch over the baby. She goes back to the village. She must, or people will be suspicious. But she returns throughout the day to nurse the baby, who, of course, is not weaned. You know the rest of the story. Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe with her entourage, And as the Pharaoh's daughter is bathing, she sees the basket, I think more likely hears the cries of the baby, has some attendant to bring that basket to her, and immediately when she sees that baby in the basket, she knows this is a Hebrew child. She can tell by the clothing the baby is wrapped in, and Pharaoh's daughter knows the edict. She knows that by law, this baby should be dumped into the water. And she could go her way. But in this extraordinary moment of God's providential care, the Pharaoh's daughter is touched. Her heart is filled with compassion. And she decides that she will not follow the edict, which itself would be punishable by death. Just then, the person left in charge to watch over the baby. Her name is Miriam. She is actually the sister of the baby. Steps forward and says, if you're going to keep that baby, you're going to need somebody to nurse that baby. It's obvious you can't nurse that baby. I know somebody that can nurse that baby. You want me to go get her? I can go get her right now. 
And Pharaoh's daughter said, yes, you go get her. That girl runs home and grabs her mama, the mama of that baby, and brings her back. And Pharaoh's daughter says to her, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this baby home, and I want you to nurse him, take care of him. I'm going to pay you to do that. Now, think about God's provision. Jochebed is a slave. Her resources are minimal. And here Pharaoh's daughter is going to pay her for taking care of her own child. God's blessing in the midst of a tough, tough situation. She takes that baby home. Having heard the Pharaoh's daughter say, bring him to me when he is older. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. But in those days, a baby was nourished, was breastfed until that baby was about four, sometimes five years of age. So we know it's at least that long, perhaps even a little longer. So another thing we learn about Jochebed is that she has been given the gift of time. And she must determine how she's going to use that wisely. You see, she knows this baby is going to grow up in a culture that is very unlike her own. There are going to be different customs. There's a different culture. There are different gods. So she is going to do everything she can to build into this baby's life a sense of identity, who he is. She's going to teach him the stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. She's going to teach him the stories about the God who has promised to deliver them. Now, friends, I know that life was busy for her, but she had to make some choices. And I believe she chose to do the things that would matter most in the life of this young child in the precious little time she had with them. The truth is, all of us have a limited amount of time. We can't do everything, but we can choose to do the most important things when I was a little kid we didn't have family devotions at our house but my mom and dad were often seen reading the scriptures I saw them at night kneeling by their bed saying their prayers they came to my bed to say prayers with me what they were doing was installing holy habits in me they decided there were some things that were going to be more important than others. Now, really, rearing kids, you know this, it's, it's a messy business. It's time-consuming. If you've got kids at your house, you probably ought not to expect your house to be on the parade of homes. Give yourself a break. Let yourself engage and do the things that matter most for these children now some of us are going to say yeah but I, I don't feel adequate to do those things I mean you know I, I I'm not trained theologically or biblically here's the good news you just have to be one step ahead of where they are and you know how you do that you do that by you engaging in your own devotional life deepening your own spiritual journey taking some of the Bible studies, some of the group studies that we do here, joining your heart with others of like mind and like life station to share the journey of parenting together. This is not just moms. This is about moms and dads, grandparents and grandmas. This is important for you because you have more influence than you can possibly imagine on those young lives. Another thing that I think Jochebed did was to teach her children appropriate 
responsibility and accountability. Who was there on the riverbank watching after that baby? Miriam. She was given the responsibility. Her mother trusted her. I bet that she prepped her well to do that responsibility. All of us are called to teach our children. We as the faith community are called to invest and teach our children as they grow increasing levels of responsibility and accountability so they can make wise, God-honoring decisions when they're adults. You see, we're not just rearing children. We're rearing adults. Think about what you want your young person to be when they are adults. Now, I know when they're real little, we just fix things. We take care of it. We try to guide them. When uh, my wife, Lydia, who's with us in this uh, worship service this morning, was about nine years old, she had two younger sisters born. They weren't twins, but they were 11 months apart. Can you imagine that? Well, when they got to be about three or four years of age, Whenever Lydia and her mom and the younger sisters would go to a grocery store or department store, the younger sisters would split and go in opposite directions. And Lydia's mom just got tired of that and put Lydia in charge. And my wife is a take-charge person. So at age 13 or 14, when they would go to that department store or grocery store, she would put a hand on each one of their necks and then just steer them where she wanted them to go in that. Do you ever, do you ever wish you could steer your young person in the direction they ought to go? Oh, my. But we help them develop that inner directiveness by helping them learn to be responsible and accountable before the stakes get too high. There was an excerpt from a book that I read several years ago. It's called The Power of a Mother's Love. There's a story in there about Phil and his 17-year-old daughter, Tiffany. Let me just share this with you. Tiffany comes home with alcohol on her breath. Phil decides he's not going to talk with her about it right then. He'll wait till morning. He also decides he will not speak with anger, but with sadness. The next morning, Phil says, I felt so sorry for you last night. I smelled alcohol on your breath, and now I'm starting to worry about you and alcohol. What would you guess about using the family car right now? Tiffany replies, I guess I might not get to use it. Phil says, good thinking. Now Phil is setting a limit. Tiffany will try to talk him out of it because she is a teenager and that's what teenagers do. Can she talk him out of it? No, because no matter what Tiffany says, Phil says the magic phrase. Here it is. Probably so. Tiffany begs, but I won't do it again. Probably so. Well, all the other kids get to do it. Probably so. Well, says Tiffany, trying to draw her father into an argument. So you've got a big problem over alcohol, Dad. Now I can't drive and I got to go to school and look like a dork because probably so. Well, how am I supposed to get to work at the jewelry store? Now what Tiffany is trying to do is to give her problem to Dad. But Dad knows that if he gives her any answer, any answer at all, is she going to like that answer? No, of course not. So wisely, Phil says, I don't know. 
I was going to ask you the same thing. Well, I'll probably get fired. Probably so. Now, friends, I don't know that that would work in every context, in every situation. But the point is, Phil, out of his deep and abiding love for her, wants her to learn now while the stakes are still low. Taking responsibility for your own decisions means also taking accountability for the consequences of those decisions that invariably come, good or ill. Now, I know we won't do this perfectly. It's an art, this thing of rearing our children. We will make mistakes. But we need to try to do that consistently. And the good news is that we are surrounded by an incredible faith community here at Wesley Memorial. We have dedicated, committed, well-resourced folks who deeply care, who deeply love the children and our youth and you and want the very best for your lives and your spiritual journey. In children's ministry, right just over there and on that next floor up, the children are learning about God's love for them and what it means to be a disciple at age-appropriate levels. Our youth and teenagers are being nurtured and mentored by that ministry team. Friends, they want to partner with you. Our whole church wants to partner with you in this journey of parenting and grandparenting. You see, we believe there's so much at stake. These children and youth will be grown and gone in just a few years. They're going to be out there in a culture that has contrary voices, that offers alternative ways to live that are not in keeping with the Scriptures, and we need to build into them as Jochebed built into Moses and Miriam and Aaron a sense of identity that they might recognize the claim of God in their lives. They, they might not only have the knowledge, but they might have the experience of God's love and action in their lives so they can stand firm for what is right and life-giving on this journey. Not only did Jochebed teach responsibility and accountability, I think she also made investments in the spiritual and emotional accounts of her children. You see, it's not only the children. There is no interaction we have with another human being that is a neutral interaction. It either makes a positive deposit or it makes a withdrawal of some kind. I want you to think about positive deposits that we can make in spiritual and emotional accounts. Affirmation, encouragement, acceptance, listening, being fully present, witnessing to our own understanding of faith and how we experience the Holy One. Now think about those withdrawals that we make in relationships with our children and other human beings. Unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, discounting, inattention. And by our actions, indicating that church is optional. If there's nothing better to do, actions do speak loudly, friends. And we as the community of faith take a stand not only with our words but with our behaviors that indicate the validity of our faith. In those key relationships then when the account balance is high, when we have to correct and redirect, there is enough trust, there is enough belief that this person is out for my good 
not just trying to limit me, that the relationship can stay intact and can indeed flourish. Now, just as your church wants to partner with you, just as your church wants you to know that you will never stand alone in this place, I want you to also know that God loves you relentlessly, like the songs we were singing, irrevocably, relentlessly, and is always pursuing that the fullness of his presence might be received in your life with its blessing. You are not alone. I do realize that sometimes you might feel that way. Sometimes because of relationships that have gone astray, relationships that are strained and broken, you may feel abandoned and wondering if God is present. I want to assure you that God does hold you very close. That truth came home to me several years ago now when I was visiting my mom in a local memory care unit at a wonderful retirement community here in High Point. She was on the verge of her 91st birthday, though she wouldn't know it. Deep in Alzheimer's for years, she no longer had recognition of any kind. She had lost the ability to speak. And on those visits I would make with her, I would commute up from Charlotte and see her once a week. I would sit there and just hold her hands and speak into her life. I don't know if she understood at any level, but it was my need to say. I needed her to hear that I love her. I needed her to hear that I appreciated her. And on that day, as I was holding her hands, I was looking at her palms. And I was thinking about all the times those hands had mended the rips in my jeans and the tears in my shirts, wiped my runny nose, dirty mouth, and dirty hands, had folded in prayer by her bedside. And as I was looking at the palms of her hands, suddenly I remembered that verse from Isaiah 49, 15, where the Holy One is speaking to a people who are feeling abandoned, who are wondering if God still cares about them. And the Holy One says this, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? And have no compassion for the child that she has born. And we recoil at the thought that any mother could forget the baby at her breast or have no compassion for the child she has born. The Holy One continues, even if that happened, though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. It just melted me. The tears were flowing. And in my tears, I thought about that resurrection appearance that Jesus made to the disciples behind the locked doors in a secluded room. Most of them had only heard about the empty tomb. They had not seen him yet. And when he appeared, they were terrified but he said to them be at peace look at my hands touch and feel 
And as he extended his hands and they saw the marks of the nails, they would have seen God's love engraved on his hands. Friends, that's how much God loves you. He loves you in the midst of your best of times, your worst of times. He loves you in, in the brokenness of your life. He loves you no matter how far out of bounds you may be. And through the love of God, through Christ Jesus, he has opened his arms. And he says, look for your name. It's here. It's for you. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you for these moments. We thank you for those who have given us life. And we thank you that we get to make the choices of how we spend that life, how we choose to live and how we choose to serve and who we choose to serve. So in these moments, we come to you and open our hearts. We give you thanks for our moms where we can, even those that weren't the kind of moms we needed them to be. It was through them that we received the gift of life. And we can honor them by the way we use it. And for those of us today who need that embrace that only you can give, may this be a time where we're willing to say yes. I want to experience my name engraved on the palms of your hands, Lord. I'm ready. I want to be your treasured and precious child. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.